Let's talk a little bit about Rev. Aaron Cutler. Ron Cutler was born in the year 1891. A Gadaladar par excellence, a leader, a dreamer, a fiery, brilliant mind, passionate, unrelenting. Let's try to think of some other, some more adjectives. Aaron revolutionized America. He saw that there needed to be a change and single-handedly, single-handedly changed it himself. Aaron was born in 1892 in the town of Suslovich. Unfortunately, his parents passed away before he was 11 years old. He was taken in by his uncle, who raised him, his brother, and sister. Even as a child, people recognized that young Aaron Cutler was off the charts brilliant. He had the memory that was unyielding. He didn't forget a thing. He was able to focus for hours on end. He was sharp as a tack and incredibly intense. He was born Aaron Pines. Suslovich is in the Russian Empire. Uh, historically, it was Lithuania. Today, it's Belarus. His uncle, Revitschuk Pines, was the dying in Minsk who took him in. He studied in the Slabotka Yeshiva in Lithuania by the altar of Slabotka, Rav Nassim Finkel and Rav Mordecai Epstein. Later, he joined his father-in-law, Mr. Zalem Meltzer, and ran the yeshiva in Slutsk. When he was a kid, he learned in a cloise, and he had a malamed until he was 10. The greatest battle of his generation, in, of the late 1800s, was the Haskalah, the Enlightenment. It was it was a wave. It was a force of of. I mean, the word enlightenment makes you think that you know everyone else is dull and dim, and we are enlightened. And it was incredibly alluring, and it really soaked people in. I had a rebbe that when when he was younger, there was an old man in his shul who came from the start the life in Europe, and he once called him over and he said, "Oh, you guys went to Israel to learn." So uh, and he like leans in and with a twinkle and a little glee in his eye, he says, did you study this in this Russian poetry? And he was like so excited about Russian poetry. And maybe he was like, I I'd rather swallow a, a, a bag of thumbtacks. Like, like why? <laughs> but that was the appeal in those days. And it was really sweeping through the, or the Orthodox Jewish community, the yeshiva world. Both his brother and sister became, quote-unquote, enlightened. And his sister went, was also brilliant and became a mathematician. 
she spent her entire life, even after Baron was the Rosh Shiva. She desperately tried to bring him in to the universities, the enlightened uh, academia. The altar, who he was learning by, Rav Nassim Svifinkel, loved Yabaran. He was, he, he was just the apple of his eye. And when his sister sent him letters telling him about the university and math, and the altar felt that at that age, Yabaran was very susceptible to negative influences and wouldn't be making a mature decision himself. So he intercepted those letters and responded as Reb Aaron and wrote her messages that went along the lines of, please get out of my life. As a side note, uh, his sister never got married, but Reb Aaron always respected her. Even when she was in a nursing home in her her later years before she passed away and people would come visit she would tell them you know hey don't make the same mistake that my brother did <laughs> Ravine used to go to the nursing home and help her feed her when Ravine was 20 he married Revisor Zalman's daughter Revisor Zalman Meltzer learned in Velazhin they got married in Slutsk, and in 1918, the Russians banned all yeshivas. Professor Zalman sent Ravaron to Kletsk, <clears throat> about 50 kilometers away, not too far, in Poland to start a yeshiva there. He was the youngest and shortest Russian yeshiva. Eventually, Revisor Zalman ran from communism and moved to Eretz where he started Yeshiva Zetzchaim. After World War I, the Yeshiva moved from Slutsk to Kletsk in Belarus. And then when World War II broke out, Reb Aaron and the entire Yeshiva moved to Vilna. The Godelader at the time, Rev Chaim Rezor-Gazinski, told all the Yeshivas to come to Vilna. That was the, the last safe haven in Europe. It was a major refuge for all the yeshivas of that area. The smaller yeshivas followed the large yeshivas, and they either escaped um, to Japan and China, or they were arrested by the communists and sent to either Siberia or Kazakhstan. Even though he had a visa, he stuck with his yeshiva and followed them to Vilna, went with them to Vilna, and just at the last minute, escaped. When the Russians invaded Lithuania, Rabarin left. Most of Rabarin's Talmudim did not escape and were Rahman al-Islam killed by the Nazis. There was a point in 1935 when Rabarin was collecting in America for his yeshiva. And he was looking around and there were yeshivas, not too many, and there were some people learning, not too many. But the entire country was in survival mode. 
the rabbim, the 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 community rabbis, they were teaching Torah just to you know keep them afloat. No one is learning for the sake of Torah, and that bugged him endlessly. He couldn't get over it. That's when he joined with the Shraga Five Mendelovich to start a Kylo. April 10th, 1941, the Vat Hatzalah, which was an organization to rescue Jews in Europe from the Holocaust, uh, that started in 1939 by the OU in America uh, and Canada. They brought Ravan over and he guided the, the Vat Hatzalah throughout the Holocaust. He was known as the Russia Yeshiva. When he got off the boat in America, there was already a greeting committee waiting for him at the docks. And he, he approached them and he said, we can't breathe here. How can we be breathing? We have to save the Jews in Europe. And they all agreed with him, obviously. The next morning, the activists got a call early in the morning and he answered and at the other end of the line there was a voice that half said and half screamed Cutler here what are we doing to save the Jews there were no games with the Baron he was blunt he was passionate he was very unpolitical political correctness played no role in in his agenda he had perfect clarity as to what needed to be done. He knew that this was MS, this was right. And nothing could get in the way. Nothing interfered. He would yell at politicians. If they made excuses, he would just give it to them over the, over the head. For example, um, there was one politician who was Jewish, Henry Morgenthau. He was the Secretary of Treasury. And if Arn went to meet him with Irving Bunim, who spoke English as well as Yiddish, so Irving was the translator for Byron. Morgenthau was from a royal family, and he was an aristocrat. And Byron came to him discussing a number of Jews that were in a position where the controlling Nazi, they discovered that he was willing to take a bribe. Byron came to tell Henry Morgenthau, we have to pay off this Nazi to let these Jews come to America. Morgenthau agreed with him. And he said, yes, we need to save the Jews, but it's illegal to give money to the enemy. We're going to be handing a wad of bills to the Nazis. <laughs> when... when Irving Boonham translated that to Aaron. He turned red in the face and he yelled. He yelled, everything that you have here, all the power, all the honor, your position, all your money is worth nothing compared to a single toenail of one of the European Jews. Irving Boonham clearly felt uncomfortable repeating that verbatim to this honorable uh, politician, and when Aaron saw that he was watering down his message, he looked at Irving and said, you translate that word by word. So, 
he took a deep breath and he told him exactly what Byron said about, you know, the whole toenails thing. And Henry Morgenthau broke down. He wasn't a religious Jew, but he knew that Reb Aaron was saying the truth. He ended up following the channels to send the money to bribe the Nazi, but by the time they completed that transaction, it was too late. There's another famous story. And we'll start with the end. When Schneer Cutler was the Rosh Yeshiva of BMG, which was Baron's Yeshiva, after his father's passing, one day a really fancy limousine pulls up to the front of the Yeshiva. As I'm sure you can imagine, there weren't that many of those in the parking lot. And three very well-dressed thugs step out and ask one of the Yeshiva guys, we'd like to have a word with your rabbi. So uh, they sent word to Schneer and he said, yeah, sure. And they, they piled into his office and this fourth man walks in and sits down and says, Rabbi, I need a blessing from you. He says, uh, what can I do for you? Um, wh wh why do you want my blessing? And he tells him a story. He said, my father was Joe Benamo, an Italian mob boss. He passed away just a few days ago. If Schneider says, I'm sorry to hear that. He says, you don't understand. He passed away in his bed, surrounded by his family and friends. So now if Schneider was just a little confused, he said, no mob boss ever dies in a bed. This was a miracle. And I'll tell you why this miracle happened. A few years ago, during World War II, there were a number of Italian Jews who were stuck in prison in Italy. And your father, referring to Ravarin Cutler, tried really hard to get them out. And although Ravarin had political connections and uh, through the Aguda and etc., etc., nothing was panning out. But when you need to save Jews, you need to save Jews. So Ravarin turned to my father, the Italian mafia. Irving Bunim set up the meeting and of Aaron pulled up to the mob boss's house one evening. Rev Aaron walked by these gigantic mobsters dressed to the nine. He was just about half their height. And he sat down in front of a large mahogany desk in a smoke-filled room. And he starts telling him about these Jews in Europe. Irving Boonham started translating into English. And Benamo says, he cut him off. And he said, whatever the rabbi wants, I'll do it, don't worry. I like his voice. He spoke with such passion, such tmimus, such MS. He said, but I want something in exchange for the rabbi. So Irving is thinking, okay, well, how much is he going to want? And 
He said, I want a blessing from the rabbi. Okay, now this gets a little tricky if you, if you step out of the story for a minute. If a gangster asks you for a bracha, what exactly are you going to tell him? You know, right? Like, what, what are you going to say? But you forget Ravarin thought at lightning speeds. And he immediately told him, I give you a bracha, you should die in your bed. Irving translated that a little nervous because he just gave him a bracha to die. And he liked it. Benamo liked it. He smiled and he said, Rabbi, you're going to get your Jews back. Sure enough, within a few weeks, those Italian Jews were safely on the shores of America. Joe Benamo's son looks at Rav Schneer Cutler and says, my father just died in bed. Your father's blessings work. I want a blessing like that too. Rishnayer looks at this boy and he says, I'm sorry, but I am not my father. You definitely have my blessing, but I can't, I can't, I can't give brachas the way my father did. There were undoubtedly many reasons why Aaron's brachas worked, but one of them was his incredible hasmada, his he lived within the confines of Torah. He, he was constantly in a sugya. He was a walking Sefer Torah. When it came to Torah, he was as fiery as he was when it came to politics. He was once giving a shir in Yeshiva's Eitz Chaim, Rev Isser Zalman, his father-in-law's yeshiva, in Yerushalayim. And someone asked a question which was not on par with the shir he was giving. A klutz kasha. So Rev. Aaron looks at the uh, menile and he says, who's your third grade Rebbe? So he told him the name. He said, put, the, put, put him in the third grade class. <laughs> it was all within the spirit of Torah and his unwavering dedication to MS, truth and nothing but MS. One of the Talmid, Talmidim in Rav Aaron's Shir had a recording of Shir, and he was playing it over for the guys, and he wanted to show them the spot where he was excited to share them where he asked the question in Shir, and in Shir, 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 and the Shir. So he, so he, uh, he fast forwards to the part of the Shir, and they're all listening. They're listening. Rav Aaron's giving a Shir, and they hear a voice in the background ask a question, and Rav Aaron responded. By yelling at him, it's a klutz kasha. What are you talking about? I brought him 20 marmakoimas that he's wrong. He said, look over the Gemara, go back to basics. And he, he tore him to pieces. And the Bacha was sitting there smiling ear to ear. And he told his friends, that was me. That was me. He was once having a debate with one of his Talmudim in learning. And it got very fiery. And the Talmud was also up in yelling mode. The decibels were high and the, the, you could feel you could feel the intensity of the debate. At one point, Aaron's eyes were closed and he was thinking and he was just trying to conjure up the right words to, 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 to give over his point and the Bacher ran out of the base medrash. And without looking, Aaron yelled, throw him out! And the other Bacher who were there, they were witnessing the scene, they, they kind of whispered to Aaron, but um, Rebbe, he already left. So Ravarin said, all right, bring him in and throw him back out again. Ravarin built Tyra 
in an Eretz Loizerua. America was referred to as Eretz Loizerua. There was nothing there. No one was interested in what Rav Aaron was building. He had no support. He was a lone man building an institution that no one dreamt of. He built a building to, ho- to house a thousand people. And the people standing there next to him at this empty lot said, Rebbe, we, we, don't, we don't have a minion yet. Barvan had a vision and he dedicated his life to building it. And today there's the yeshiva that for decades has had many thousands of Talmidim learning there at a time. That's hundreds and thousands of Talmidim. We can honestly say in hindsight that his dreams became true, but it wasn't easy. He worked and he worked and he fought and he clawed his way into the thick shell that America was to institute Tyra. How do you plant an inerrant Lazarua? None of the parents wanted to send their children. My kid needs a career. How is he going to make money? How is he going to support his family? And the value of Torah was unappreciated. There were times when he waited for two hours for a check because he had to fundraise a fortune. And many of the people he was collecting at did not respect him or what he was collecting for, unfortunately. And at some point, the, the, the guy yelled to secretaries, Cutler's still here? Tell him to get out of here. He, 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 Rav Aaron accepted a tremendous amount of Yisurim. And he said that this is my gullus. Every Rosh Hashiva has to do this, collecting this gullus. And he explained why. Rav Aaron said that for a Rebbe, who over the years has hundreds, maybe thousands of Talmidim, it is inevitable that at some point in his teaching career, he's going to insult a boy. Not intentionally. Beshaigig. And someone who embarrasses someone in public. Kilu Hargam. It's as if he killed him. What is the din? What is, are, what, what's the consequence for someone who kills Beshaigig unintentionally? He has to go into Gullus. Aaron said, this is my gullus. He was once in Miami collecting and a woman stepped into the elevator with him who wasn't dressed in neostic. Aaron started to cry. And he looked up at the Rabbanish and he said, This is what you saved me from the Holocaust for? It would have been better that I died in the flames of Auschwitz than to be here and witnessing this. Rav Aaron was scrupulous with his Shmira Sanayim. He guarded his eyes from anything that a Ben Teresh should not see. Back in Slutsk, he wouldn't walk through the streets of that little town. And as I'm sure you can imagine, the streets of the busiest cities in those days were nothing compared to the shtetls of today. 
Yeah, Rav Aaron made sure that when he walked from his house to yeshiva, he would go via backyards. He wouldn't walk through the main streets. One day, two Talmidim were walking their Rebbe from yeshiva to his home, or vice versa. Uh, as it is customary, you get to have some personal time with your Rebbe. And as they're walking from backyard to backyard to backyard, they reach one fence. And there's a ferocious dog barking at them. With terrifying, malicious intent in his eyes. The boys looked at the Rebbe and said, Rebbe Umayri, Adkan, we can't, we can't follow you into that. This is the equivalent of a lion's den. Ravaran said, trust me, hold on to my jacket and walk with me. Now that Ravaran told them to go, they had no choice. So they hopped the fence with the Rebbe and as they landed on the other side, the dog got down in a fetal position, <laughs> whimpered like a puppy in respect for the Gadol Hadar, for a man who would not walk through the streets of the city to guard his eyes. How could he bark at him? His shiurim and yeshiva were incredibly complex. He would spin a weave of, of dozens of different topics. He spoke a mile a minute and incredibly passionately. People didn't necessarily go to understand Sheer. That was almost a bonus. Just to be able to see a craving, a desperate need for MS. And to be able to see a man who's who, who contained, had the entire Tyra, call it Tyra cool at his fingertips. It didn't matter what you understood. That experience was breathtaking, priceless, and he drew uh, flocks of people. Regarding his fundraising, he once showed Rev. Elias Svei of uh, Yeshiva in Philadelphia, Zechat Sadak Levracha. He showed him a big check in those days, a check for $300. This was a check that he collected for Yeshiva. He told Revelia, This check, this money, it's not from the Balabatim. He said, Balabatim hate me. So where does the money come from? He said, This money is from Hashem. This check is from Hashem. And he told Revelia Svei, You have to know this in order to spread Torah. Ravaran used to say that the key is responsibility. Ravaran gave many shmuzim about the relationship between Yisachar and Zvulun. And he would tell his Balabatim that Zvulun comes first in the Pasuk because Zvulun gets more schar. One of the Balabatim called out from the crowd, Rabbi, why don't you sign up for Zvulun? So Ravaran answered, he famously said, yes, you will get more schar in Olam Haba. But I have Olam Haba in Olam Hazeh. When the yeshiva printed out their brochures, their stationery, they had a picture of the yeshiva building on the front. The artist painted in some extra trees 
to add to the decor, the presentation. Whenever Aaron saw that, he looked at it and said, those trees aren't there. And they said, that's correct, but it's, this is a, you have a poetic license or an artistic license. And he said, no, you don't. That's Shaker. Take it off. And they had to reprint them. MS was at the core of everything that Baron did. He told his daughter when she was going out into the working field, he said, you can get any, go into any profession that you want. The world is your oyster, but don't become a lawyer. S why? He said, since law teaches you the art of lying. He said, that's going to ruin your soul. Ravaran once saw a boy learning Gemara, and the boy was struggling. He was having a hard time understanding it. He was going over it again and again and again. Ravaran watched and started crying. He said, I will never have that. Are there any of you out there who are struggling with learning? This is huge chizuk. Ravaran was crying, and he said, I will never have what this boy has. I'm smart. I'm quick. I never had to schwitz on a Gemara like that. Have it easy. Some of his accomplishments in 1943, he started Bismarck's Gavaya. He started it with 15 Talmudim. By the time he died in 1962, there were 250 students. Today, it has somewhere around 7,000. Lakewood itself has more than 100 other yeshivas and something like 200 shuls and counting. Something like 66,000 from Yidin, which is definitely an underestimation. When Ravisar Zalman, his father-in-law, was Nifter, he took over his position as the Rosh Hashiva of Eitz Chaim in Yerushalayim. He actually held that position while he still lived in America, and he would visit Yerushalayim on occasion. On November 29th, 1962, Reb Aaron was Nifter. His Leviah was on the Lower East Side. And when he passed away, they immediately contacted the New York Times to try to cover it and let people know. And they totally refused. They said, I don't, I don't know if you understand, but we're kind of a big newspaper and we're not going to cover the funeral of every, you know, rabbi in some Hickville in New Jersey. But the next day, when 25,000 people showed up and 200 police officers of the NYPD were assigned to the event, every newspaper was desperate to try to figure out who is this, what's going on. There were 700 seats in the shul where they did the Leviah, and they were each reserved for Gudalim, Rabbanim. His Leviah felt like Yom Kippur. If Moshe Feinstein was Masbid, the Satmar Rebbe, 24 of his Talmidim flew with him to Eretz Yisrael for his final burial. When they arrived there, they were greeted by another 5,000 people in the airport. Traffic in Yerushalayim was at a standstill. 30,000 people lined up to be Malava the Gadol Hadar from the airport to the Eitz Chaim Yeshiva. And 
and then escorted him to Hiram Anuchas. Reb Aaron's yard site is Bayes Kislev. May we live by the lessons that he taught, following his ways, and be to greet Mashiach together with him very soon. Thanks for listening.